All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 28th day of January 2020. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and I also want to invite you to keep sending along uh, whatever comments you have about this show, positive or negative or anything in between. Send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week's show, Irving Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Hannon Metals, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Gatling Exploration, TriStar Gold Resources, and Lion One Metals. I've titled today's show, Inflation or Deflation in 2020. Mark Faber, John Rubino, and Quentin Henning are my guests this week. If you define inflation as an increase in the money supply, as Austrian economists do, well, we can be pretty much 100% sure that 2020 will be an inflationary year, because central banks are now committed to printing an infinite amount of money, whatever it takes to keep the uh, to keep the party going. But where will the money go? Will it continue to move into stocks and bonds, in which case the government will likely report relatively low inflation numbers? Or with stocks extremely overvalued, from historical standards anyway, will money already in the stock market, combined with trillions of new dollars being created out of thin air, move into tangibles, starting with precious metals and the entire commodities complex and into real estate. That's kind of the scenario that uh, Alistair McLeod and uh, Michael Oliver have uh, have painted for us and what they're kind of looking forward to this year. Well, in just a moment, uh, I'm going to ask John Rubino for his thoughts on, on that topic. And Mark Faber will be with me to dig more deeply into the pathology of Keynesian economics and why the existing dollar system is ultimately doomed. For investors, timing uh, is of the greatest financial interest, of course. And for that, I, I look uh, quite quite seriously to Michael Oliver, not for short-term trades, but to be sure that we're on the right side of the longer term, uh, on the right side of the markets for the longer term. Since Michael was last on the show over the past uh, couple of trading days, at least, commodities have fallen and the dollar has risen. Both of those moves in the short term are counter to Michael's predictions, but again, Michael is talking about, what he's talking about is not short-term, but longer-term trends. Gold as well over the past couple of days has been weaker, which goes against Michael's longer-term view for uh, a a gold bull market that takes us the first stop somewhere around $1,700. Well, as an investor as opposed to a trader, I want to be sure, as I say, to be on the right side of these major moves. 
Regarding equities, Michael put out a notice to his subscribers yesterday showing that from a momentum point of view, the market leading NDX has fallen below the S&P 500. In, this, in his one-page missive, Michael said, and I quote, Today's momentum action credibly broke the multi-point eight-month-old up, eight uptrend. The leadership of NDX has turned, has turned. Expect the broader market's net price direction to follow. In other words, Michael believes that we are the end, at the end of the bull market for equities. Well, will that mean then that we are heading into a commodity inflation, as, uh, as some of our guests have argued? Well, after our first uh, commercial break, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me to provide an update on the progress being made by Novo Resources in seeking to mine the massive conglomerate-hosted gold fields of Western Australia. I'm really looking forward to what Quentin has to say because we haven't heard a lot from that company recently. I know they're working hard. They're using some new technologies to figure out how they can mine this massive gold field uh, economically. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Quentin will have some things along those lines to tell us uh, after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that John Rubino is with me. Thanks for joining me, John. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's just good to always good to have you with us. Uh, I wish we had more time so we could have you more often. Um, John, you know, we got, I think, um, I think it's pretty well understood. Uh, I think you would agree with this, that we're going to see trillions of dollars of new money created out of thin air. Um, you know, we've had many guests on this show, uh, basically come to that conclusion. The Fed can't, it wanted to, I think under the current Fed chairman, he wanted to normalize the balance sheet. He wanted to let interest rates find some sort of market uh, discovery, uh, but he couldn't. He tried to normalize the balance sheet. He tried to call, you know, stop um, and unwind the balance sheet and, and let the market dis- determine. But what happened? We had a, a scare at the end of 2018 and 2019. We At the start, a pivot back to enormous money creation. So I think, first of all, you would agree that this is a one-way street in terms of money creation. And secondly, what happens? Where does the money flow? Does it continue to flow into the financial assets? We have this bond bubble, stock bubble. Where does it go, I guess? We'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, when, when you create a ton of new money, it goes somewhere, right? It is given to someone and they in turn spend it. Uh, and that pushes prices up and whatever they're buying, you know, a little more than would otherwise happen. Um, but in, in this last cycle, They've created more money than ever before, and they've given it to the banking system, but it hasn't flown into the uh, uh, the things that make up the consumer price index. In other words, government's headline inflation looks really low because all the money that we're creating has flo- flowed into things that aren't in the consumer price index, mm-hmm. like stocks and bonds and real estate, uh, and they are through the roof. So if you included those things, which really, if you're an investor the price of stocks and bonds is part of your cost of living, right? So it's Mm -hmm. a legitimate thing to include in an index that tracks Mm -hmm. the cost of living. But if they did that, then we'd already have overt inflation, not hidden inflation. We've had, we'd have three, four, five, 6% rates of inflation because really stocks were up like 30% in just the last year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and so if we, if we put that into the consumer price index, it would be rising dramatically right now. Um, And, because of that, and as you said, the question is, does it keep on going in this direction or does money flow out of stocks and into other things that we actually measure as inflation? And, you know, there's no way to know that for sure because um, 
financial asset prices are such attractive, easy things to buy if you're a rich person with a lot of extra cash. You know, it's really easy just to load up on whatever stock is going up. Um, on the other hand, valuation does matter, and stock valuations are now as about as expensive as they've ever been. You know, we're we're up to 1999-2000 levels. And historically, when they get there, uh, they can't go much further because then you're just paying crazy prices for the earnings of the, you know, the underlying earnings of the companies that you're buying. And then you get a crash. And uh, Michael Pento just wrote something that he published today that I think illustrates the situation now um, for equities as a vehicle for inflation. Uh, and, and that is that um, the, the five biggest market cap stocks now um, account for about $5 trillion of mm -hmm. uh, U.S. market cap. And they're the biggest holding in all the ETFs that are out there. So you've created conditions in which you've got some wildly overvalued stocks that dominate the most popular investment vehicle out there. Mm -hmm. And when money starts, you know, if, they, if Google stock takes a hit or whatever, mm -hmm. or just because of valuation, they start to roll over as a group, mm -hmm. um, the ETFs would be forced to sell, which exacerbates the downward mm -hmm. pressure on stock prices, and you get a, a, a brutal bear market. Mm -hmm. So we've created conditions for that now, uh, which means that um, you know, if financial assets roll over, then we don't have inflation in that sector anymore, and we'll see what happens. So we could easily have a couple of deflationary years, according to um, the CPI. Mm -hmm. Because all this debt that we've taken on has bid up asset prices and overvalued assets are kind of deflationary because they crash and pull everything mm -hmm. down. So, mm -hmm. so it's really hard to know um, what the next few years hold in terms of inflation. But I think it's safe to say that the next few years definitely hold volatility. In other words, things are just going to do um, make crazy moves in lots of different directions because we're committed, as you said, to continue to create huge amounts of new currency, continue to dump it into the market, and it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and we're at a point now where it's not obvious where it should go next from the point mm -hmm. of view of uh, the people with that money, which means it's very unpredictable. But the amount of liquidity out there absolutely means volatility is mm -hmm. going to go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I just want to ask you, and I should mention to our listeners, dollarcollapse.com is your website. And one of the features that I like most about your website, John, is your 10 videos. Every week, you have your 10 favorite videos. And one that I watched there this past week was from uh, Barton Armstrong. And uh, with just a couple of minutes left here, John, I'd, I'd like to get your opinion. Martin talked about he believes that we are having an increase globally in interest rates now. That runs counter this notion. He's suggesting that the central banks are printing massive amounts of money to keep the interest rates suppressed. But nonetheless, they're rising anyway because there's just a massive shortage of savings to finance the huge def deficits that the U.S. government and others are running. Uh, and he, he's not all that bullish on gold right now. I, I, I certainly don't agree with that. But he seems to think that it's inevitable that the rates are on the rise, no matter what the central banks do, and that therefore we could very easily see, uh, you know, some tectonic changes in the in the major markets like the equity markets. If if it's perceived that the central banks are don't have control of this anymore, and the interest rates are going up no matter what they do, wouldn't that be some sort of a recipe for disaster? Oh, yeah, because if interest rates go up, all the variable rate debt in the world um, 
is required to pay higher interest, which means governments around the world would be, would be bankrupt. Um, numerous corporations would uh, would become insolvent if uh, if they had to pay much higher interest rates. And and so you you'd see the uh, the leverage side of the economy just grind to a halt. And that's pretty much everywhere now. You know, everything is the, the leverage side of the economy. Um, so yeah, higher interest rates are a death knell for the current system, which means the central banks and the central governments will do everything within their power to stop rates from going up. Um, And and so the game ends when they find they can't stop rates from going up Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And Martin Armstrong believes we're there. Mm -hmm. And I I tell you, it wouldn't surprise me if we were there, but uh, I I wouldn't want to go out on a limb and say, I I think that's the case just because that, Central banks have proven to um, to be a lot more powerful um, entities than I expected, and they're much better able to manipulate markets than I thought they would be. So, you know, the idea that they could do it again isn't far-fetched, but at yeah. some point it has to end. They have yeah. to lose, and maybe this is the time. Yeah, well, I think Martin pointed out that a 1% increase in Japan for Japan would mean that every – Every do- every uh, every amount of money they took in, every every yen they took in would go towards paying interest on the debt. So, you know, clearly the math doesn't work. When you have a debt growing much faster than income, sooner or later, uh, even for large governments, even for world superpowers like the United States, uh, it's going to be game over. I think. Well, John, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and again, it's uh, dollarcollapse.com, folks. Go there. And, and enjoy the articles that John posts there, and, and in particular, his, um, uh, his, his 10 top videos each week. Very, a lot of really great material there. John, thanks so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to have you on again as soon as possible. Great. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, don't go away because uh, we're going to have Dr. Quentin Henning with us. Uh, he's uh, president and chairman of Novo Resources. We're looking forward to an update on all that's going on uh, with Novo Resources in Western Australia. We'll be right back with Dr. Henning. Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5-kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Hanning, Chairman and President of Novo Resources. Thank you for joining me again, Dr. Hanning. Thank you, Jay. Really good to have you with us, and especially since we haven't had a lot of, a lot of news. I know that a lot of important things are going on there uh, with Novo Resources, and as you seek to uh, mine those conglomerate-hosted uh, gold fields that you're working in, but what's happening? Can you give us an update now? What's happening with Novo right now uh, as you seek ways to to mine efficiently and uh, economically those very unusual conglomerate-hosted uh, project, gold-hosted projects in Western Australia? What's what's sure. new? Certainly. Let's, uh, let's kind of pick up where we left off last year. Um, last year, we did a lot of work at Edgina. Uh, you know, we kind of did mostly exploration-level work, but you know, some components of the Edgina project require uh, more advanced work. So, you know, we did uh, we did bulk sampling, but we actually collected two large, we'll call it trial mine samples, a uh, thousand tonners, uh, and those are being processed. In fact, one's entirely processed, um, and the second one is roughly two wor- two thirds of the way through processing. Um, the information from those bulk samples will help. You know, confirm our view about uh, you know the the potential of the property, but also our ability to uh, forecast you know a resource there. So mm-hmm. these samples are, are very important. We will have news on those within the next two or three weeks once the uh, second sample is fully processed. Uh, the other thing we did last year at Edina, we you know late in the year we started branching out. We got approvals. Um, from the heritage uh, party that we're working with there, Gary Yar, and they they've given us uh, access to a, a considerably larger uh, surface area to work. So, so we've started uh, work this year. We we actually started our field program on the 13th. There was a cyclone event mm-hmm. uh, right after the first of the year. It was kind of wet, and uh, it has been a little wetter than normal. But we are out there doing work now, and. Um, and we're we're pitting, so we're, we're you know we're digging small pits to explore brand new areas. These are areas that have never seen any exploration whatsoever. Um, it's exciting for us because you know this kind of work is really what's going to provide proof of concept uh, as far as the, the deposit model goes. Uh, if people will recall, back in 28, uh, 2019 in May, we did our initial ground penetrating radar surveys mm-hmm. around the test area there in, on the edge of the mining lease. And those work fantastic. You know, it, it basically showed us where we should expect higher-grade uh, nugget patches uh, in these swale-like features, these very, very subtle but uh, very important, uh, you know, we'll call them valleys for lack of a better term, but they're really a broad, uh, shallow valley. All right, so now what we've done this year, uh, okay, we, we to recap last year, we found mm-hmm. two areas towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a... a a kilometer and a half or two south of the area we did our initial test work. All right, so we we came up uh, Trump's there. We we found a brand new 
patch of gold nuggets or I, when I say patch, I don't want to make it sound limited. You know, we found mm-hmm. a new area that's part of this bigger system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, up at a place we call Paradise, about, uh, I think it's around 15 kilometers north of Vigina, we found uh, yet another area with, you know, demonstrable gold nuggets over a uh-huh. field. All right, so so what I what I proposed to my team or our team at Novo uh, I said, look, uh, let's let's really you know throttle this up and, and start doing some aggressive exploration across the the terrace. And I I put a challenge to him. I said, let's find we'll call it five new uh, you know edges, meaning you know mm-hmm. the test area that we we did all the work last year. Mm-hmm. Let's five new brand new uh, areas over a broad you know part of the terrace that we can show the market. Hey, this thing is bigger than. Mm-hmm anyone perceives right now that it's it is continuous that there's gold over a, a very large area all right so right now our team is out digging uh, test pits in in areas that have never seen uh, to our knowledge any prospecting uh, historically or recent metal detecting or anything they're they're defining these areas using ground penetrating radar they are defining these areas using some good old geology okay uh, we recognize certain features of the gravels in the test area that, that now we can take out, that, take that knowledge outward and start prospecting new areas. And I'll tell you what, uh, I think in, in a couple, within, a, say, a week or two, we'll be able to tell, some peop- tell people some very exciting stuff, okay? Uh, so just hold that thought. A uh, very important component of the edge of the project, showing that it is big, big, big. Okay, what else are we doing? Well... Don't forget ore sorting. Okay, mechanical <laughs> sorting. Uh, I cannot emphasize how important this, uh, you know, new technology is, <clears throat> you know, to to us. Ultimately, probably to the mining industry, but for us in particular, uh, late last year we we did sorting tests on the edge and the material, and you know it was directly on the edge and the gravels. All right, we demonstrated we collected ninety nine percent of the weight of the gold in the sample mm. with. A machine. I mean, hmm. think about that for a minute. Okay, this this machine, you know, it, it has a conveyor belt. Uh, it carries, you know, a, a layer of gravel across these sensors. Sensors pick up the the electromagnetic sensor in particular picks up the the metallic gold particles. By the time the the gold particle reaches the end of the conveyor, the computers determine where it is and how much air it needs to flick it off the end of the belt and into a little bin. Okay, now we. We managed to capture 99%, 99% wow. of the gold into a mass that was less than uh, half of a percent of the total mass of the sample we started with. That is incredible. Okay, so we're very excited about that and where that's going to take us. But now let's move forward. So now I'm going to talk about this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, initiated uh, um, tests. Uh, phase on Beaton's Creek material. Mm-hmm. For those who need a little background, Beaton's Creek, the gold particles are smaller than you see at Edgina. You know, most of the Beaton's Creek material, the gold is, say, a millimeter or less in size. All right, so this is a bit of an unknown for us. This is really putting this uh, this technology to a test. It's, it's mm-hmm. a complete unknown. So what we did is we've crushed uh, a large sample, almost three tons of this material, uh, or sorry, we pressed about six tons, I believe it is, and we've di- divvied that up into two parcels. One has been uh, submitted to uh, a company called Steinert, mm-hmm. 
do test work in Perth. They have machines there, a laboratory where they're doing test work. The other uh, three-ton sample has been delivered to Tomra over in Sydney, but they've also sent some to Germany to, to do some test work. All right, so what we're doing over these, uh, say, five, six weeks in the first part of the year here is test work on this Beaton's Creek material just to see if we can get a response. Mm-hmm. I think uh, once we are able to talk about this, and it will be very soon uh, in a news release, I think people will understand how excited we are. Um, the thought of taking, you know, two, three gram type material, in this case from Beaton's Creek, I believe the actual grade of the sample is on the order of five grams, but you know, mm-hmm. taking take material where you have little tiny bits of gold scattered mm-hmm. through the rock and then crushing it down, screening it, and then putting it through a sorter and having the sorter identify, you know, rock that is, is gold-bearing and mm-hmm. picking it, basically upgrading the material is, is phenomenal. Right. Okay, think about the implications. I mean, basically all of our conglomerates, you know, whether it's Beaton's Creek, Caratha, uh, you know, Comet Well, Virgin Creek, we've got lots of conglomerate uh, systems across the building. All of these things will likely be, uh, you know, treatable by this process if we can make Beaton's Creek work because Beaton's Creek is, is the finest grain version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're extremely excited about this. I would say to people, you know, watch out for news around this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very, you know, we're very pleased with what we're seeing so far. And we'll actually be able to discuss numbers around it very, very soon. Okay, so we're picking up on the ore ore sorting uh, this year in an aggressive way. And I think you'll see uh, lots of good news around that for the council. Well, that's that's really good. Uh, so we might hear something on the Beaton's Creek. Uh, you, you've you've already had a resource there, I think, a, of some sort there in the past. Uh, but but this will allow you to fine tune it, I suppose. Well, the the current resource is about four hundred fifty thousand ounces each of indicated and inferred. Uh, and what this the processing the tests that we're doing is really uh, an experiment to see how such such mineralization can be upgraded. Um, you know, just to yeah. put it in perspective, let's say you found a deposit. Let's say we found a conglomerate deposit, 100 kilometers from Nullagine, okay, or yeah. something. Well, yeah. We could potentially upgrade it out there and then transport the upgraded material into a central processing facility. Right, right. right. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, anything else you want to say about Beaton's Creek? I think that there was some some talk possibly of a mill yeah. or something like that. Yeah, or, uh, Yep, I'll bite my lip, but uh, we're moving forward. We hope to have a scenario where we can put Beaton's Creek into production this year. This year yet? Oh, well, that would be uh, very interesting. All right, well, before we run out of time here, I just have to ask you about the Kalamazoo Resources investment that you and uh, that is Novo and Eric Sprott uh, made in equal amounts. I think it was, uh, I don't know, something like four. I don't know, it was a 40, $4 million in, in uh, Australian dollars, I think. You and, and both Eric Sprott, Novo and Eric Sprott put equally. You know, what, talk to us about the Kalamazoo resources and why you're, uh, what you see there. Okay. Uh, I, I will tell you, uh, you know, the history dates back to 2016 when Eric first took it an investment in New Market uh, Gold. They had the Fosterville mine which is just a few kilometers north of this project that, uh, that you know, this Castlemaine area that 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Kalamazoo is working. If you have Foster, it'll turn out very well. It turned out well for New Market, but also Kirkland Lake now. I uh, I had the you know very fortunate uh, uh, luxury to to help Eric with with that in early days. I, I went to the site, and studied the geology, and I figured this thing. You know, I saw the saw the kind of geology I like that tell, told me it was going to be a big big system. All right, so based on that, uh, Eric moved forward with an aggressive investment. Kirkland ultimately took over the company. And it's been the foremost gold-producing asset on this planet for mm-hmm. the past years, okay? Um, what I see geologically, what I see at Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo is very similar, similar style gold, similar uh, high-grade, what we call epizonal orogenic gold mineralization, mm-hmm. mountain gold, but it's basically a shallow-level uh, vein system in an orogenic uh, environment. Okay, these things usually get eroded away by Mother Nature, but for some reason in the Victorian area, Victoria area of Australia, these things are preserved. And man, when I saw this, I called up Eric, we discussed it, and we acted very quickly. It took a, a week or so to put it all together, but we, we jumped on it. Okay, if, if these guys are on to the next Fosterville, I want Noble shareholders to benefit. All right, just uh, with the very limited amount of time we have, what you have an option. I think it's uh, at 80 cents. Your initial investment's at 40 cents in Australian money. 80 cents, the same number of shares you can buy, but at twice the price. What will you need to see to convince you to exercise? What will you need to see as you start to look at this investment more closely? Um, they have lots of money, so there's no rush to, to exercise. Uh-huh. But what I would like to see out of this project is, firstly, aggressive drilling. Okay, I, I want them to treat this aggressively, but I want to see more high-grade epizonal mineralization mm-hmm. uh, or offset drilling around this discovery, but then also testing new areas. Look, the, the property is huge. It's a brand new, you know, Greenfields-level project. I think it has huge potential for very high-grade mineralization. All right. We'll have to leave it go with that. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Henning, for being with us again. Fascinating story there at Novo Resources. Uh, we are out of time, but uh, we'll have you on again sometime for another update. Thank you so much. Well, folks, don't go away. Right after the break, Dr. Mark Faber will be with us. He has some very important things to say, very important insights into the directions of the markets this, this year. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Mark Faber. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie Project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. 
The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Mark Faber. Dr. Faber was born in Switzerland and at the age of 24 received a Ph.D. in economics, magna cum laude, from the University of Zurich. He has lived in Hong Kong and Thailand most of the time since 1973. Mark is well known in the financial world and had been a regular figure on U.S. mainstream business channels until a few years back when his honest remarks in praise of Western culture were held in contempt by a leftist revolutionary mindset that seeks not so much to undo aspects of Western culture that are not so good as to really essentially destroy the virtuous characteristics of Western culture that have led to unparalleled prosperity for the masses and to individual freedom. Like so much of today's political landscape, if you don't agree with the leftist views, you are shut out by the mainstream because because I think the mainstream media is obviously more interested in being politically correct than truthful. They took what Marx said out of context as an excuse for shutting out conservative views that the left doesn't like. That may Mainstream action makes Mark even more welcome on this show. Before we get started uh, with Mark, let me just tell you that you can follow his work at Mark Faber blog, Mark Faber's blog dot blogspot dot com. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for your kind introduction. Well, it's it's heartfelt. It's believed. I, I think it's unfortunate <laughs> that uh, diverse opinions are being are being shut out of the mainstream media in the Western world, and I think that will be our undoing, quite frankly. But in any event, Mark, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the precarious, what I think is a precarious position the U.S. Uh, financial system is in, the Western world, in fact. You know, once upon a time in America, the Republicans, at least, had a conscience about our country living beyond its means. Republicans would push for a balanced budget, which was more in keeping with their philosophy of limited government. The Democrats, on the other hand, were quick to adopt Keynesian vote-buying deficit spending. And realizing that financial rectitude was a political loser, President Nixon, after removing gold from the dollar in 1971, declared that we are all Keynesians now. And the result, of course, has led to more than a huge amount of debt uh, in the U.S. balance sheet. The 
Treasury now owes something more than $22 trillion, I believe it is. Initially, there were concerns in the United States uh, that if we lived beyond our means, there wouldn't be enough savings to fund the U.S. Treasury. But then net export nations recycled their dollars to buy treasuries, and so we Americans have gotten by with a living standard that we haven't really fully earned. Well, how much longer do you think this can go on, Dr. Faber? Well, I was a very good friend of some strategists at Merrill Lynch in the 80s, Dan Salvickson and Charlie Minter and uh -huh. uh, Aaron Steen. And they maintained already then in the 80s that these deficits were unsustainable and that interest rates, which by 1985-86 had declined from a peak on long-term treasuries of over 15%, that declined to something like 10%. And they thought they would go up again. And by the way, uh, Milton Friedman, he also thought that interest rates would go up again and mm -hmm. that inflation would accelerate because of the rapid money supply growth. And so there were concerns at that time when... Uh, government debt to GDP was still very small because it had been declining in from uh, the 1950s onwards as a percent of the economy. But uh, so far, you know, the government debt has increased under the Democrats and as you pointed out under the Republicans both and uh, interest rates continue to go down. Uh, that may reverse at some point, but we don't know when. And we have now voices like uh, a former Minneapolis Fed President, Kocher Lakota. Uh, they just recently published an article, the federal debt is nothing to lose sleep about. The government can borrow as much from taxpayers as it wants. You know, you have now this uh, frame of mind that deficits don't matter. And uh, Trump, he doesn't care about debts. He never cared about debts in his private business, uh, two of which went bankrupt and actually hurt a number of investors. And he doesn't care about debt nowadays uh, of the U.S. But they will care one day when interest rates no longer go down and the interest payment as a percent of the budget will keep on rising. Uh, it hasn't hurt Japan much yet, but Japan spends a very large portion of its budget on interest payments. And if interest rates in Japan just went to 1%, all of the tax revenues would be spent on interest payments on wow. the debts. So it's not sustainable in the very long run. But can it be sustainable for another five years? Yeah, for sure. Well, it, it leads me to wonder, Mark, you know, recently there have been some tremors in the repo market in the United States. And this is my understanding, and I'd like to get your to see if you agree with this. It's my understanding that much of that was taken down by the by about four major banks in the United States. Uh, to a great extent, the Chinese and other net export nations have not been uh, participating in the in the treasury markets as they once did, and so that left a lot of that uh, beholden to the banks. They took down a huge amounts of treasuries and became cash poor, treasury rich, to the point where they felt they couldn't continue to buy treasuries, at which time the uh, repo market interest rates spiked up last year and even so far this year, I think they've been pretty high. The Fed has then had to step in to ensure liquidity in the banking system and, of course, to do that and to keep rates subdued. 
else uh, we start having some real problems, as you point out, in Japan, maybe not that, that uh, severe in the U.S., but clearly we saw with uh, Powell's pivot, when rates start to rise to any great extent, they start to create chaos in the markets, and the equity markets started to tank and so forth. But who's going to buy treasuries? Who wants to buy treasuries at these current rates? I, as an American, don't want to buy them. Who's going to buy them? Uh, another side of it, another argument is that, well, U.S. rates are still positive compared to negative rates throughout much of the world. And so a lot of foreigners are happy to buy U.S. treasuries. And there's just be continuous purchasing of U.S. treasuries by people who are seeking positive yield. But these problems in the repo market have any concern to you? Do you think that may be suggesting that this thing can't go on forever? Well, the thing is this. When they started with QE1 in December 2008, uh, I maintained that this would not be QE1 and QE2 and QE3, but it would be QE infinity. Because once you start printing money, uh, repeatedly, when you want to slow down the rate of money printing, you have illiquidity issues. And what is happening in the repo market, we can say, well, it's because of the banks. Some maintain it's because hedge funds are in trouble or over leveraged and they have to borrow short term mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. So that the reason why it's happening, uh, there are many explanations, but the fact is simply the Fed began with quantitative tightening about two and a half years ago and that tightened monetary conditions, it didn't lead to higher interest rates because the economy is not as strong as the statistics that are published by the government or the Ministry of Truth would suggest. But basically, it didn't lead to higher rates, and uh, but it led to an illiquidity. And so the Fed's balance sheet was shrinking until last August, and since then, all the quantitative tightening, not all, but more than 50%, has been again offset by quantitative easing. Quantitative easing as defined by an increase in the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. An increase in the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve is basically the Fed is buying assets. In the case of Japan, it can, can be equities and it can be bonds. Uh, in the case of the US so far, it's been bonds, treasuries mostly. But who knows? Uh, they have a plunge protection team and I watch the market very carefully until it closes every day. I think there were days when the Fed intervened into the equity market. Uh, I cannot prove it, but just looking at the market action, uh, and it wouldn't surprise me because they intervene into the money market uh, through interest rates manipulation. And uh, as you know, some people maintain that they are manipulating the price of gold and silver and so forth. So it wouldn't surprise me that they would also intervene in the stock market. Yeah, I mean, it would seem so. And, and for sure, I mean, it was uh, instability in the equity market that seemed to be at least a major part of the reason that Powell Pitt did his pivot back at the end of 2018. You know, it seems to me, Mark, that at least looking at it superficially, as you say, this thing could go on for five years yet. So, you know, what the heck? Just keep buying stocks, right? You can't go wrong. Well, I'm not sure that buying stocks will be uh, rewarding from here on because, as you know, the valuations are very high. I'd rather say the lesson of the last six months, namely the illiquidity that has come up, uh, whose symptom has been 
showing up in the repo market shows that the central banks essentially cannot stop printing money. If we assume that this is the case, that the central banks are hostage to asset markets and that they have to keep on printing money, then we have to assume that one day the asset inflation, which we had since 1980-81, in other words, rising stock prices, rising bond prices, falling interest rates, rising art prices, rising prices for collectibles and real estate, that this kind of asset inflation one day may shift into inflation of hard assets, such as a precious metals or agricultural land or lumber or and so forth, but into hard assets. <coughs> My sense is that this whole theory about deficits don't matter and so forth will come unglued once uh, investors perceive that it's being overdone and that it will lead to currency weakness. Mm -hmm. You understand? You said before, who is going to buy treasuries at this low rate? Right. Well, I can tell you Mark Faber is buying them because the rates in the US are very high compared to the rates in Europe and in Japan. And I'm not bullish about the US dollar, mm -hmm. but a lot of investors are bullish about the US dollar. So they rather invest at, say, a treasury bond yield of on the 10 years today, 1.72% in US dollars, then in Greek bonds, <laughs> Greece, yeah, yeah. well understood, yeah. that have a yield of 1.3% wow. in euros, or Swiss franc bonds that have a negative yield. Say in Switzerland, uh, I can buy a 10 years zero coupon bond, but I have to pay 113. Mm -hmm. So over 10 years, I'm guaranteed to lose 13, okay? Yes. Now you may ask, which idiot would buy the 10-year Swiss uh, for 10 years at the negative yield? Well, the idiot who thinks that all assets will collapse by 50 to 90%, he may say to himself, okay, i rather lose 13% over yeah. 10 years than 50%. Mm -hmm. Plus, uh, the bond market is artificial in the sense that in many countries, pension funds and insurance companies they must invest a certain percent of their assets in government bonds. Mm -hmm. I suppose in the US it's similar that some pension funds, government state pension funds, they must buy some treasuries. Uh, so anyway, the market is no longer an entirely free market, the way you don't have any more free speech mm -hmm. entirely, and uh, it's manipulated and guided <laughs> by mm -hmm. the uh, central planning authority, the Fed in most cases, and the Treasury. And in this environment, you know, you don't know how long it will last. But one assumption is that it will end very badly. And then as an investor, you have to plan to have some money should it end very badly. Right. Assets that then benefit. Right. Mark, let me ask you about this. Uh, the notion, do, do you think that you know, as you said, U.S. rates are higher, so that's attracting foreign money, foreign capital in the U.S., forcing U.S. rates lower, which is what the Fed wants anyway. The Fed, at least it doesn't want the rates to rise 
because it will throw, you know, it will create chaos in the markets. But uh, do you see negative rates in the United States as a prospect uh, this year or sometime in the near future? Well, a year ago, they made a survey in the Wall Street Journal of 50 leading economists in the U.S. I'm not sure they're 50 leading economists in the U.S., but they call them the 50 leading economists. Anyway, none of them did forecast that in 2019, the 10 years would be at less than two and a half percent. And as you know, we finished a year at something like 1.8 percent. So I don't have a great uh, respect or I don't regard the forecast by economists to be very relevant. I think we don't know, but based on Europe, where the ECB has actually introduced negative rates, we could have negative interest rates. I don't think it will happen, but it could. I think interest rates, you know, that's why you said. Yeah. uh, Nobody, who on earth will buy a 10-year treasury at a yield of 1.72%? I think if I believe that the stock market is going to go down this year, if I believe that the economy will be weaker than, uh, say, the media and the typical investor believes, then I think I'm reasonably well positioned to have some money in treasuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that certainly makes sense from your perspective. I'd like to run an idea that Alistair McLeod, who's a frequent guest on our show, uh, has uh, passed along to us. And that is that uh, if the U.S. were to go negative, and, and he doesn't say it has to go negative, but if the U.S. go U.S. rates go negative, he says there's a difference between, say, yen negative rates or euro negative rates because the U.S. dollar is a world's reserve currency and all commodities are priced in U.S. dollars. And thus, uh, he also holds out the, you know, the Austrian concept that, uh, that the, of um, of preference, time preference rates. And so he points out that gold, for example, has an implicit time preference rate of maybe around 2% because that's what you get in the forward market. Uh, and, and the, But in any event, everything has a positive pre- time preference rate. So his point is that if the U.S. dollar were to go to negative uh, rates, that is, uh, if U.S. interest rates were to go negative, that, the, um, uh, that there'd be no reason... Uh, for the world to hold U.S. dollars, you'd buy gold or silver or copper or anything that has positive time preference rates. Does that sound like a? Does that does that make sense to you? Well, it makes sense to me in as far as the dollar is holding its own. In other words, is relatively strong, uh, partly because uh, of the yield differential, which I pointed out to you. You know, the yields in America are much higher than in Europe and in Japan and in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the reasons. But it is also true that optically or superficially, the U.S. economy is doing better than, say, Europe or Japan. Yeah. Whereby, you know, it's difficult to measure because in Japan, we don't have widespread poverty. We don't have this uh, enormous homeless people problem. And so forth. And uh, society is relatively affluent, despite the fact that the economy hasn't been growing uh, meaningfully for the last 20 years. But the people live reasonably well by their standards. Now, uh, concerning the view that people wouldn't hold dollars but gold, yes, uh, 
I share this view, and I, as you know, I'm kind of bullish or positive about, or have been positive about precious metals for at least 20 years, since uh, the late uh, 1990s. But I have held and bought gold throughout uh, the late 1980s and 1990s simply as a store of value for no other reason. I expected it to one day go up, but I didn't know when. As it turned out, it was quite a good investment. Anyway, I still hold gold and silver and platinum. Uh, I missed the palladium bull market, but you have to see the fund management industry manages, I don't know how many hundreds of trillions of dollars, Mm -hmm. and the banks hold dollars and currencies and the central banks around the world hold monetary reserves if they thought that they should rather own gold than these monetary reserves, the gold price would have to be at something like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, ridiculous. You understand? I agree with the theory that you presented and I think that's the reason one should hold gold and silver and platinum, but obviously the gold market and the silver market and I mean the precious metals market is tiny compared to the liquidity we have in the world. And you want to hold these precious metals because one day there'll be a move, but it's inconceivable that everybody could shift the money (laughs) into all the money that floats around the world into gold. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, you understand? It's like, it's inconceivable that the whole world could own yen or Swiss franc and so forth. Right. So no, that's but the, the theory is, of course, correct. I think one day, uh, the way the British pound was one day no longer the global currency, and uh, the way the Spanish uh, currency was no longer the leading currency in the world, uh, the same way the dollar will eventually disappear. Yeah, for sure. Um, just real quickly here, because we're almost out of time, but um, yes. you, you're talking about this theoretical gold price. Uh, you know, It's ridiculous, really, from our perspective right now anyway. But when the dam breaks, when there's a reset of the system, the U.S. dollar-based global system, and it, ser- it seems to me that the Chinese and Russians and other adversarial nations of the U.S. would not be unhappy to see that, that happen. They're building up their gold reserves themselves very dramatically. But when this happens, it's not hard for me to fathom, given the history of the United States, that gold confiscation could very well be a policy of governments around the world if they need to have gold in their treasuries to restore confidence and to rebuild uh, their monetary systems. So my question to you is, do you worry about, is that something that you, I'm sure it's something you've thought about, but if, where do you think the most, what do you think the most safe place to keep or store gold is in the world now? We used to think Switzerland, Switzerland isn't your, that's your your native land, used to be the freest of countries. I don't know to what extent they're coming under the pressure of the United States and other, you know, one world government advocates, but um what are your thoughts on that? What's the best place? I mean, I... You know. Of course, I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, I'm not very optimistic about the uh, solution. Uh, first of all, if you look at uh, the U.S. introduced FATCA, it's a reporting system where essentially the 
countries that sign to it, they have to open their books about who their clients are, if they are required to do so. And most countries in the world signed that. Uh, if the U.S. can ask, in other words, the U.S. can ask uh, a bank in Switzerland to submit uh, the account statements of someone living in Switzerland to U.S. authorities. The Swiss cannot do that in the U.S., <laughs> you understand? Ah, so it's yeah. basically a very unfair regulation, and I don't quite understand why so many countries actually signed to it, because they kind of give up their sovereignty. Sure. But based on this FASCA example, I'm very concerned that if the U.S. would expropriate gold in the U.S., and you understand the expropriation would not occur without any payment. Mm -hmm. Say today the gold price is uh, at around 1500 So they may say, okay, we pay you uh, 1000 $566 an ounce, and then once they collect all the gold, and they will go to the ECB, and they will go to the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of China, and Russia, and say, you have to do the same. Mm -hmm. Now, most governments uh, will not like it, but they will probably go along and do it as well. Especially maybe not in China, maybe not in China, but say in Singapore and in Switzerland, they'll probably do it. And then uh, they will collect the gold at $1,566, and then they'll revalue it to say $100,000 an ounce, or something like that. That's so bad. you'll miss the big bull market. But you probably still be better off by owning gold because before this happens, gold prices will probably more than double. You understand? Sure. They're not going to do it now. Well, that's good advice, and I, I certainly better to own it than not to. Except I think there was a case in the during the French Revolution when some people who own gold or farmers who demanded to be paid in gold because the currency was worthless uh, lost their heads. So I suppose nothing is risk-free <laughs> completely <laughs> within the four dimensions of time and space, Mark. We really are out of time, but I have to ask you about this FATCOM, is that what, is it F-A-T-C-O-M? F-A-C-T-A. I'm going to check it out. That's uh, really important. I wasn't aware of that. Mark, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Always a pleasure. Your <laughs> insights are very, very valuable. Stick to your guns. Stick to truth. Don't let anybody take that away from you, all right? Thank you. Thank folks, you for the interview and your time. Well, you bet. That's all the time we all have right. this week, folks. But next week, Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources will be my guests. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world, not owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com.